Gospels to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm actually going to sit down this morning. My son was ill yesterday, and as of this morning, I think he's given me the gift that keeps on giving, so. Uh, just to, so I don't pass out or do something dramatic. Well, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we're looking at verses 4 through 12, and I think I believe it's on page 1187 in your pew Bible. Whoever's been dreaming of a white Christmas can stop now. (laughs) All right, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. So here's the question of the morning. Can a true Christian, a real Christian, lose his salvation? Is it possible for someone who once was lost but now is found to then become lost again? Uh, Can someone who is truly a follower of Jesus, who has genuinely been saved in a full biblical sense of that word, regress in their faith and backslide and actually reach a place where they've gone so far backward that they cross some line known to God, presumably, and they actually enter into a category of being unsaved and not having the hope of eternal life. Now, this is a question that has divided Christians down through the centuries. Christians take different views on this. Uh, within Protestantism, for instance, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but you can, you can sort of trace two general answers to that question. Uh, one answer to that question is, uh, no, a true believer cannot fall so far away as to actually be lost again. And this is more the Reformed tradition. And then there's another sort of vein of interpretation uh, that's more Wesleyan, uh, Nazarene churches perhaps, if you've been in any kind of uh, assemblies of God churches. Um, And and just the Arminian tradition that says, yes, actually you can. You can actually reach a point where you've gone so far that that you can fall away. And so Christians debate this back and forth. And and, uh, this isn't just sort of a theological debate. It's not just kind of like a Rubik's Cube that's fun to spin around and say, oh yeah, well, I don't know. We'll try, we'll try it this way. We'll try it that way. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Put it back on the shelf. This issue actually, I think, has profound ramifications for our, uh, our Christian lives and how we live our Christian lives. Uh, and it can have certain dangers attached to it. So, for instance, 
if it's possible for a real Christian to uh, never uh, fall away from the Lord because God takes care of them, that can in some cases lead to a sort of spiritual laziness. You know? You've heard of the phrase, once saved, always saved. I don't like that phrase. I don't think it's very helpful. But some people can have that attitude. Like, well, you know, I, I asked Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior when I was five years old, so I'm all set. You know? And so, yeah, I know I've lived like hell for the next 20 years, but, you know, whatever. I, I've, I, I prayed that little prayer, and I have my fire insurance card, and I know I'm saved. And so it can lead to a real spiritual laziness and presumption. On the other hand, if you go down the other path, that can lead to some dangers too. It can lead to a, not spiritual laziness, but spiritual anxiety. You know, where you're constantly worried, have I lost my salvation? Did I go so far? Did I lose it this time? And, and it can breed, in some, some cases, a, a real spiritual legalism where there's an obsessive rule-keeping. You know, we have to make sure we keep the rules. Why? Because you don't want to lose your salvation. And so, so there's... There's real-life implications of these two views. It's not just kind of a theological debate that people in seminary have fun kicking around. It can really affect the way we develop or not develop spiritually as believers. And when Christians wrestle with this issue of whether or not a real Christian can lose his or her salvation, one of the texts that rises to the surface that is at the center of the debate, one of those texts that Christians wrestle with is the one that's before us today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses, especially verses 4 to 6, but really this entire section. And uh, it's one of those passages that, you know, if I had my druthers, we'd just kind of skip over it. But unfortunately, um, we've established this annoying pattern of preaching through a book of the Bible, which makes us have to face every issue that's there. So uh, here it is, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. Now, these verses are part of an argument. And I think one of the dangers of wrestling with a theological issue is that it's easy to take verses out of their context. And so anytime you look at a passage of Scripture like this, you have to remember what the the flow of the argument is. And if you were here last Sunday, you you probably will remember that uh, the author of Hebrews is urging the readers to keep maturing in their faith. That's his main goal. He wants them to just get it in gear and keep growing up and stop being such spiritual babies and press forward in their faith. You know, look back at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. It's time to mature. It's time to press on. Uh, The problem was these people had been believers for a long time but the, the level of spiritual maturity was out of sync with their level of chronological maturity. They should have been more advanced in Christ than they were at this point. And then to, to further that argument that they need to grow up in their faith, he then says in verse 4, it is impossible. In fact, in Greek, there's, a, there's another word there that I don't know for the life of me why the New International Version didn't put it in here. It's in some other translations. But it's the word for or because. Very important word. So it really should be translated this way. For it is impossible. Because it is impossible. In other words, this thing that we're going to wrestle with about losing your salvation is really part of a larger argument, the goal of which is to spur us on to spiritual growth. And if we come away from studying this passage with just some Bible verses that you know we can pull out of our pocket now for a theological debate, we've kind of missed the point. You see what I'm saying? The point isn't to necessarily solve the riddles of the universe. It's to get growing. And if we're not growing in our faith, then... It's like we have to go back and read it again because that's really the point. 
So, but that being said, let's look at this text. It's impossible, verse 4, for these people who are Christians, verse 6, if they fall away, whatever that means, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, there's a bunch of concepts there that, that are undefined uh, at the present. So, for instance, it says, if they fall away. What does it mean to fall away? How do you know if you've fallen away? Is falling away like if you, you know, sin a hundred times, then you sin the hundred and first time, and then you fall away? I mean, where's the line of falling away? What does that mean? This is a funny Greek word. It only appears here in the whole New Testament. So it's kind of tough to know exactly what falling away means. Probably the closest we can come to understanding this word would be to go back to chapters 3 and 4 where uh, the writer of Hebrews was challenging the uh, people back uh, then to keep persevering and not imitate the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness back in the Old Testament. Do you you guys remember this from several weeks ago? We're talking about the Old Testament Israelites. Remember this? Moses brought them out of the promised land. He brought them up to the land out of Egypt. He brought them to the promised land. They're about ready to enter the promised land. Joshua is saying, let's go in. Moses is saying, let's go in. And the Israelites hear that there are huge giants in the land, that they have big fortified cities, that the people are big and scary. And the whole Israelite community says, no, we're not going in. No way. Forget that. We're going to get killed if we go in there. Let's go back to Egypt. Then Joshua stands up and says, no, this is a good place. And if God says he can give it to us, then... God's going to give it to us, so let's go take it. And as a whole, the Israelites, with a few exceptions, rebelled against God. They rejected Moses. In fact, they said, you know what? We need to kill Moses, Joshua, and these people and get some new leaders who will take us back to Egypt. So it it wasn't just, you know, oops, I did it again, kind of Britney Spears sin. I mean, we're we're talking a wholesale rejection, a wholesale intentional hostility toward the purposes and plans of God where the whole community says we are done that's it we're not going forward and I think that's probably what we're talking about here it's probably the closest we get to understanding what falling away is it's some kind of intentional wholehearted apostasy not a whoops not a I'm struggling with this but I really want to move forward this is a I'm done with this forever and we turn their back and so what it seems to be saying then Going back to Hebrews chapter 6, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, for those who are Christians, if they cross that line, it's impossible for them to come back over it again. Why? Verse 6, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. So if you utterly and in a decisive final way, whatever that looks like, repudiate the cross of Jesus then how can you be saved again since you gave up the one thing that can save you? That's kind of the logic, as I understand it. If you said no to the cross, and the cross being the one thing that can forgive our sins, and you finally and decisively rejected it, there's not a second cross. To be saved, you'd have to re-crucify Jesus all over again. So it, it seems to be saying that there's a real danger here that the community is facing. Now, there are some theologians and some scholars and some... Uh, Bible teachers who I really respect and appreciate who have made an argument where they say, actually, the people being talked about in verses 4 and 5, those who once enlightened, those who tasted the heavenly gift, those aren't actually real Christians. They're just superficial Christians. And so so it's, it's trying to sort of solve this dilemma by saying the people being talked about here aren't actually believers. They're just kind of people who sort of hang around the Christian community. 
and have had some superficial experience of being in a Christian community, but they're not really saved. So let me just kind of play out the argument for you. It goes like this. Look at verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. And this interpretation says, what does it mean to be enlightened? Does that mean to really be enlightened in the sense of God giving you the gift of salvation? But you know, the word enlightenment can refer to just teachings. Maybe these are people who are just taught. They've been taught in the church. It's not like they've been enlightened enlightened on the inside. They just had some education about Christian truth. Or look at the next phrase. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. And some have argued, you know, a, a taste doesn't mean you eat it or swallow it or absorb it. It just means, you know, to kind of do a little taste and then like a little kid, maybe you spit it out of your mouth. Like, bleh, I don't like it. So you tasted it, but you didn't actually receive it, is how the argument would go. And uh, so, so which one is it? Is it, are these people really Christians that we're talking about or not really Christians? And how do you know? Um, and I think this is one of those kind of situations that cause some people to say, look, the Bible is just up to everyone's own interpretation. Have you guys heard that one? You know, you always tell the Bible to me, but it's up to everyone's interpretation. You have your interpretation, he has his. You can't know what the Bible's really saying. It's just up to everyone's own opinion. And I just think that, no, <laughs> you actually can know with more certainty than that. Um, so, so how do we determine whether or not these are talking about real Christians or not real Christians? And if I could just kind of go on a little tangent here about how to interpret the Bible. The answer is you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. This is the, the great sort of Protestant, one of the Protestant pillars, is that the Scripture interprets the Scripture. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church said, how do you know what the Bible teaches? The Roman Catholic Church says, the Church will tell you what it teaches. The Pope will interpret it for you. And the Protestant Reformers stood up and said, no, the Scripture is going to interpret the Scripture. The Word of God is going to interpret the Word of God. And, th- and that was a fundamental watershed and continues to be watershed issue. You know, how do we know what the Bible says? Is it the church that tells us what it says, or is it the Word of God that tells us what the Word of God says? And so this is why I'm, I'm a Protestant, because I, I believe the Word of God is the final authority in the church. Not any man, definitely not me, or anyone else. So what does the Bible say? How do we use Scripture to interpret Scripture? Well, you've got to look at the context. So I, in, at the end of the day, I'm not persuaded by this argument that that these people aren't really Christians. And let me tell you why. Let me give you two reasons from, from Hebrews itself. First of all, the whole flow of the argument is, hey, you people there, you better grow up in your faith. Hey, you real Christians, keep growing up in your faith, because if you don't, there's going to be a big problem. But if, if the verse 4 is not really talking about real Christians, then how does, that, how does that buttress the main flow of the argument in the whole passage? It, it just is out of context. It's kind of random. Or uh, you can also do this. You see that word enlightenment or, or tasting the heavenly gift? You can also do this. You can look at the, the elsewhere in the book of Hebrews and you can say, does the writer use those words elsewhere in a similar fashion? And if so, will that maybe tell us what he means by those words, by looking at how he uses it elsewhere? And in fact, he does. You see that word, once been enlightened? He uses it later in chapter 10, verse 32. Let me give you a couple for instances here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. It says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light. That's the same Greek word as when it says those who have been enlightened. It's just different. It sounds different in English. It's the same Greek word. Okay. So, hey, you Christians, remember when you were enlightened? When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Look down to verse four, 34. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? 
because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Christians have better and lasting possessions, not just people who are superficially associated. So, so it seems to me the word enlightenment is really referring to spiritual enlightenment, not just having some superficial teaching. Or just one more example. Go back to chapter 6, verse uh, 4. It says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what does it mean to taste something? Well, go, he uses the word again. Look back at chapter 2 now, verse 9. He says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And what does it mean to taste death there? Like he just got a little taste of it and said, woo, yuck, I don't want that. No, he fully experienced. So tasting is a metaphor of experiencing and entering into something. So based upon the context of Hebrews itself, I just find it really unconvincing to say that these people here aren't actually Christians. So, go back to Hebrews 6 then, verses 4 to 6. It seems to be saying then that if a real Christian comes to a point of falling away, not knowing precisely where that line is, but assume that God does, that that person then can't repent and come back. Uh, and then, or again, look at verses 7 and 8 just to further the point, he uses a metaphor. Land that drinks in the rain often, falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. So we're like the land. God's rain is coming down. And if we uh, produce fruit, if we obey God and show a fruitful Christian life, then we receive God's blessing. Verse 8, But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned, which I think is an ominous reference to final judgment. So, so it seems from these verses that, yeah, a, a, a real Christian, were they to come to a place of ultimate falling away, can't be brought back. That seems to be what the text is saying. So, well, I guess that's the answer to our question. We've, we've wrapped it up. We've put a bow on it. Oh, and then there's verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Even though we speak like this, even though I just scared you with this dire warning about falling away, Dear friends, there's that kind tone. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Now, what in the world? <laughs> How could he be confident? Where's his confidence coming from? I mean, he just made this huge kind of threat, this, this dire warning that, look, you know, you people, you're not growing, and if you don't. If you keep backsliding and, and become so immature, there's a possibility you'll fall away and be lost forever. So it's a real serious warning. And then he says, but even though I just said that, you know, the reality is I, I'm confident that's not going to happen. It's like, what? <laughs> I mean, the, the whole point of possibly losing your salvation is that it undercuts that kind of confidence. How can, how can you be confident? And how could he be confident about these people? I mean, he's complaining about how immature they are. You'd think of it, if anything, he'd be unconfident about them and that he would use that. But all of a sudden, he's like, I'm confident. You're going to be fine. You know? You're going to receive better things, things that accompany salvation. So, how can it be that he has confidence in them when their entire behavior would undercut confidence? And I think the answer is it's sort of hinted at there at the end of verse 9 things that accompany salvation. And what's salvation? It's 
It's God rescuing us from our sins by His power and initiative. Salvation isn't us trying to do better and, you know, I'm going to make myself better, I'm going to improve my life a little. That's not salvation, that's just self-improvement. But we need, we need more than that. We need a Savior. And so, he says, because God is at work, because of salvation, I'm confident for you. Again, look at verse 10. God is not unjust. Aha, so it's God that's giving him confidence. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him. So we're going to talk about that verse in a minute. So it's, so it's really God that's giving him confidence. Now, this is a theme that's running throughout the passage. Uh, let's go pick it up. Remember last week? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Now, if you're here last Sunday, you might remember that I told you that that verb, go on to maturity, in Greek is actually passive. So I don't know why it was translated this way, but I think a more accurate translation would be, let us be carried on to maturity. It's God who's doing the carrying. Or it's very explicit in verse 3. And God permitting, he says, we will do so. It's God who's going to enable us to keep pressing on. Right? Or look down at verse 13. I don't want to steal next week's thunder, but maybe I will a little bit. It's all about God's promises. Chapter uh, 6, verse 13. When God made His promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for Him to swear by, He swore by Himself, saying, I will surely bless you. I am going to bring the blessings of salvation to you, and I'm going to give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So we're talking here about but God fulfilling His promises. God doesn't fail in His promises. Or, you know, to even steal the thunder more, look at the end of that section. Look at chapter 6, verse 20, where He's talking about Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we have this confidence that Jesus is our high priest. He shed His blood for us once for all. The high priest is the one who prays for the people. So Jesus is now in heaven at this moment interceding for the people. So, you know, in the, there's this warning about be careful because if you were to fall away, you'd be lost. And then there's all this comfort. God is at work. His salvation is at work. He keeps His promises. Jesus is your high priest. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. So how do you put this all together? And, and let me just tell you how I've, I've formulated this text in my own mind as I try to synthesize all the things that the person is saying here. This is how I would put it. Can a real Christian lose her salvation? And the answer I would give is yes, but for the grace of God. Yes, but for God's activity in that person's life. You know, if left to ourselves without the grace of God in our lives, you and I could and probably would, by this afternoon, turn our backs on God. <laughs> I think it would unwind rather quickly. <laughs> I wouldn't even give it a week. I mean, I'd be there. right? But, because God is at work, we have a hope and confidence that, that in fact God will carry us through. Um, or, or let me put it this way. When the author looks at the people, he's like, uh-oh, big problem, stern warning. And when he looks at God, he says, ah, confidence. When he looks at our ability and my ability and your ability to, to keep God's covenant and to obey Him, it's a disaster. And so he's got to do this extreme warning. Hey, you guys, if you fall away, that's it. But then when he looks at God, he says, but God can do it. His confidence is in the promises of God. This is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. 
is how it is what it's called. Uh, it, some people call it once saved, always saved. I don't like that phrase, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I, I don't think that's a very helpful phrasing. But the perseverance of the saints says that those whom God has saved, those whom God has worked in their lives to, to bring them to faith in Jesus, God will persevere with them to bring them across the finish line. So it's not about you and me being able to do something. It's our confidence in the promises and faithfulness and power of God. That God is, the Father is more faithful than our unfaithfulness. That Jesus' sacrifice is more powerful than our sins. That the Holy Spirit's indwelling power in us is greater than our own proclivities towards sin. That God is the one who can bring us across the finish line. And so, uh, that this is the idea. So can a person lose his or her salvation? And the way I understand the text is, left to ourselves, yes. But if a person is a real Christian, God will carry them through. Now here's the thing. This is the rub, and I hope you get this. This is very critical. Yes, God ensures that real Christians cross the finish line. But how do you know if you're a real Christian? How do you know? And the answer is because you continue to persevere. (laughs) So it's kind of a loop, kind of a circle. Do you see it? God ensures that real Christians will cross the finish line by his power. And the way you know you're a real Christian is if you're continuing to persevere to the finish line. Right? You see that? So, so the perseverance of the saints says, yes, God is faithful, but also for me to know for certain that I am saved, to have assurance of my salvation, not to gain salvation, but to have assurance of it, I've got to keep pressing on. And if I don't press on in my faith, then I don't really have as good a grounds as I think I do for thinking that I, I have hope of eternal life. You, you kind of see how that works? Right? So it protects us from both errors. It protects us on the one hand from being filled up with anxiety, like, oh no, I've got to keep all the rules, and if I don't keep all the rules, I could be cast out and lose my salvation again. It protects us from that kind of hyper-obsessive legalism that, that affects Christians. I have a, a friend who's affected by that, and, and it's hard to explain to him. You know, he's just so caught up in this idea that he's crossed the line and fallen away, um, even though I see signs of, of conversion in him. On the other hand, it also protects us from spiritual laziness. You know this phrase, well, once saved, always saved. Hey, you know, I prayed to ask Jesus in my heart when I was five, and so I'm, I'm all set. You know, like, really? Where's, where's the persevering faith? Where's the evidence of salvation? You know, it's not enough to just have prayed a prayer. If that prayer is real, you'll see continuing uh, progress in your life, you know? I, I was talking to a brother uh, after the first service. He was talking with me and sharing with me. And he says, you know, I, I did pray a prayer when I was a little kid. I was, he was raised in a Christian home. But then he got into wild lifestyle and, and partying and all that stuff. And at the age of 25, he then, he then put his faith in Christ. And his life was dramatically changed. And he, he, was, he gave up drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And, and just gave up sin in general and has been growing in his faith. And, and he says, you know, I used to think I was just backslidden all those years. He goes, what I really came to figure out is I just wasn't even a Christian. Because the evidence of his conversion was a transformed life, right? And, and so, so that's the evidence that, that we're moving forward, is that our lives are transformed, that we continue to persevere in the faith. And if we're not persevering in the faith, you know, where's our confidence? Look back at the text. Look at verse 10 again. Let me show you this now. God is not unjust 
He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So God, God's going to stick with you. He's going to be faithful. Why? Because you're bearing evidence of salvation. In the past, you've helped people. You know what? Despite this castigating talk in chapter 6, you are still showing evidence of salvation. So I have confidence. Verse 11 is even more explicit. Look at verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. Why? In order to make your hope sure. So not to save you, but to just make sure that you're confident in your salvation. You've got to keep persevering. You've got to keep being diligent, right? And, and so he's speaking to these, these Christians. You know what? If you think about these two problems of anxiety and laziness, which one were the people having in this text? Laziness. That's the problem. You know, they're not over here. The majority of them are over here. So he's tailoring this message to, you know, make them uncomfortable and say, look, you lazy Christians, if you really think you're Christians, why don't you show the fruit of it by persevering in your faith. And I think that's the sort of the purpose and tone of this text. Look back at chapter 3, verse 6. Again, our perseverance is the evidence of our salvation. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 6. He says, we are God's house. We, but Christ is faithful son of our God's house. And we are His house. Not we hope to be someday. Boy, if we do a good job, maybe we'll become the house of God. We are His house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. So holding on to the courage and hope shows that we are in fact already His house. It's not that holding on makes us His house. Do you see that? You know, Sounds like a small difference. Huge difference in how we understand this. Or look down at verse 14. We have come to share in Christ... Not we will someday. We have already come to share in Christ. We know we are Christians if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. So the evidence of our real Christian conversion is in the fact that we're still persevering and moving forward in the faith. And so I think the application of this text is that we have to keep persevering in our faith so that we can have more confidence in our salvation. We we need to keep pressing ahead. You know? Don't think for a minute that because you were christened as a baby that you're all set. Where is the evidence of conversion and progress in your life? Don't think for a minute that because you said a little prayer with your parents when you were five years old that that guarantees that you're all set and saved if there's no progress in your Christian life. Where's the fruit? You know, Show me the fruit. Show me the good land producing the crops. Where is it? Don't think for a minute that, that because you or I went to a, a church camp and raised our hand to say we wanted to believe in Jesus or because we walked down to an altar call, that that guarantees that we're Christians if there's no transformation of our lives over time. A perfect life? life? Of course not. Because then none of us will qualify. But a life of progressive transformation over time is the evidence of real conversion. Don't think for a minute that because uh, you were confirmed when you were age 16 or whatever that that guarantees you're a Christian. And don't think for a minute that because you become a member of South Shore Baptist Church (laughs) that that ensures that you're a Christian. You know? it, It doesn't. We do our best as a church to try to make sure that the people who are becoming members are actually converted. But you know, we don't know with 100% certainty 
we, we, we have a machine in the back that can detect salvation, but it's broken. Uh, we ordered a part. It's on back order. I don't know how long it's going to take. So, so, so we, we, can't, we can't with 100% certainty scan people and say, okay, true Christian. So we just do our best. You know, we ask people questions. We talk to them. And people can give you a line or, or people can even think they know that they are, but they're not. So, so I don't even assume 100% with certainty that every person in, who's a member of our church is definitely converted. You know, and it's, which is just a reality. I mean, we, we wish it wasn't that way. You know, I, I just want to, first of all, make sure that I'm really saved and keep examining my own heart. And so, so really, we have to test ourselves. As the Apostle Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he says, make your calling and election sure. How can I make my calling and election sure? I mean, isn't that what God does? Yes. But you can make it sure by continuing to press forward in your faith. And so let me just challenge us you know, to keep growing. We better keep growing. Otherwise, we may be fooling ourselves. We need to keep pressing on. So, you know, as you look at your Christian life, ask yourself simple diagnostic questions. You know, start with the Bible. Do I, do I have a hunger to, to know God through the Bible? Do I have a hunger to read the Bible? Have I read the Bible in three months? You know? When the preacher gets up to preach, whoever he is, do I just kind of check out? Because my favorite part of the service was singing some nostalgic songs, but I really don't, you know, the Word of God doesn't do anything for me. I don't know. You know, real Christians have a hunger for the Bible. Not perfectly. Not that I read it every single day for two hours. But, you know, and, and, and when, I, when I haven't read the Bible for a week because I've just gotten busy with my life, do, do I feel that? And am I like, wow, I need to get back to the Word. You know, that's evidence of growing on and, and pressing on in our faith, continuing on. What about obedience in our life? Do I see myself growing in obedience to the Lord? Do I see myself confronting sin in my life and growing. And when I do fail, and oops, I did it again, or oops, I said it again, or oops, I act like a jerk again, or whatever it is, you know, do, do I feel the regret and remorse and, and weight of that as, as a sin against God? And do I say, God, I need you to help me keep pressing on? Real Christians, even when they sin, they just want to keep pressing on. I had a, a, a guy who uh, became a, a Christian, um, uh, actually became one of our missionaries, Sean Keith, and I, I love what he always said to me. He said, you know, I, I used to do all these wild... I was a, he was a wild, kind of wild man before he became a Christian. He says, you know, before I became a Christian, I, it didn't really bother me. I was like, well, whatever. That's just how I am. And, you know, I hope I don't get caught sometimes. But, but he says, when I became a Christian, he says, I still struggle with sin. He goes, just now I feel horrible about it. And I think that's one of those evidences that, that our consciences are softened and we desire to grow in obedience. Do we have any compassion whatsoever for, for people who don't know the Lord? Or is it like, well, everyone's fine, everything's okay? Or, or do we have a burden that people would come to know Christ? That's an evidence of salvation. So just look through, you know, just read the Bible and see what Christians are supposed to look like, and then you ask yourself, do I look like that? More and more. And not that we're perfect, not that we've achieved it. So we have to really test and examine ourselves and press on in the faith. So what does all this have to do with Christmas anyway? I, mean, I thought this was supposed to be like Christmas service with candles. You know, instead of this is a service about losing your salvation and all this stuff. What does this have to do with Christmas? Everything? <laughs> you know, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus coming to save us. And so we're really asking a simple question. Have we really laid hold of Jesus? And are we really following Him? I mean, we're, we're talking about 
implementing the meaning of Christmas in a progressive way in our lives. And if that's not happening, then I think we've completely missed the whole point of Christmas if we haven't laid hold of Jesus. This is the situation. The world is full of people who need to know the Lord and we're not going to reach them if we're baby, immature, backslidden, non-progressing Christians. Christians, when we're in that state in our lives, we are in no condition to press forward in the faith. Right? So if we want to see the gospel come to the South Shore of Austin, the first step is not to set up some evangelistic program. The first step is to, to progress in our own hearts and to become serious in our own lives about our Christian faith. You know, we've given for so many years, we've given skeptics such an easy out because they say those Christians are such hypocrites. We have to take that excuse away from skeptics. We've got to show them that this is real. And when we do that, then we'll be prepared for whatever it is God wants to do with our church. So, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We believe in you. Help our unbelief. God, we want to press on in our faith. These words from Hebrews just challenge us and inspire us. God, I want to be a more faithful pastor. I want to be a more faithful Christian. I want to reflect Christ more as a husband and as a father. God, I want this church to be a church where people are really growing and maturing and not just sitting idle in their faith. Lord, call us. I pray that You would give to each believer here a specific step to take, a specific area for them to progress in their faith. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has a false assurance of their salvation, if they think that they really know the Lord but haven't, and, and they're just religious but they're not really Christians, God, I pray that you would, you would just knock away, kindly and lovingly knock away that false assurance so that they might call out and say, I need the living God to transform me and save me in a dramatic, supernatural way. And so, Lord, I pray that You would be at work in this congregation. Lord, we want to take away the excuse that those Christians are just hypocrites. Lord, forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us, Lord, for our complacency. We are lazy like these people in this book. God, we don't want to be lazy anymore. We want to continue growing. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.